Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Hey, um, can I have permission to mess with your personal calendar for a moment? Just, just for a second. I won't mess with it long. Don't you love it when people try to put things on your personal calendar? Hopefully you'll enjoy and be excited about this one. On November 7th, Sunday, November 7th, we are going to be having uh, our return of our annual Praise and Play in the Park. Yay! Now, for those of you who have never been participants in our Praise and Play in the Park, what that means is we do not hold our services here on campus that day. We take both our our early service and our 11 o'clock service, and we relocate them to Charleston County Park there off of Highway 78. What's the name of that park? Wanamaker. Yeah, I knew it was that Wanamaker Park. That's where we'll do worship that day. And so it'll be a great day. More details are coming, but what you need to know is put it on your calendar. Sunday, November 7th. Praise and play in the park. You will be bringing a pick a nick a basket for all you Yogi Bear fans. Okay? Some of you are saying, Yogi what? Some of you are saying, oh, the baseball player. I'm actually talking about the cartoon character, okay, just so you know. All right, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3 today. I hope that you put on your track shoes because we're going to run today, okay? We're going to run. You're going to need your tennis shoes today. We're going to do lots of scripture. Um, I know some of you are saying, but Joe, we did Nehemiah 3 last week. We got all the way through. We're going back. What, just one more message in Nehemiah 3, okay? And uh, again, we're, we're, we're literally going to run um, through this. Some of you will uh, remember uh, that in this, this account of uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah was heartbroken over the condition of the holy city of God, Jerusalem. And God sent him there. And there come this moment in time where uh, on his mission, he gathered the people. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah made this declaration in front of all the people of God in the city. He said, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Come, let us build. Now, I'm going to do something uh, in today's service that uh, some people don't like it when people do this with the Bible. And... um, But I I know this, I know that Paul did it, he taught with allegory, and nobody did it better than Jesus did. And so my two preaching models are not, you know, Charles Stanley or Andy Stanley, it's not the Stanley boys, Um, it's it's Jesus first and then Paul uh, a bit of a second. And so I I don't have a problem with this. I do know that people get in trouble sometimes taking scripture and kind of symbolizing it we can get off track which is one of the reasons there's going to be so much scripture today I want you to understand why these for me these thoughts are rooted in the word of God now the Bible has a lot to say about gates and we're going to be talking about the gates of the city of Jerusalem uh, today it's just it's really important that you be captured by this idea of the gates in in Psalm chapter 119 um, we read these words uh, it says open for me the gates where the righteous enter and I will go in and I will thank the Lord these gates lead to the presence of the Lord and the godly they enter there 
Jesus, when he was speaking one day about gates in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said these words. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and it's easy that leads to, it's an easy way that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find that gate are few. Now, Nehemiah talks about ten gates um, in Nehemiah chapter 3, and I want us to look at those gates today and think about how they can have application in our lives. So what, what today's message is going to be like is maybe a bit of a, giving you a diagnostic tool, if you would, a way to kind of look at this and think about your own lives and the gates of your life and how maybe these correspond in your lives. And uh, I want to show you a picture. This is a drawing of the city gates and walls in Nehemiah's day. So this, this is the drawing, and if you'll notice, if you'll uh, kind of be captured by it, in the upper right-hand corner on the top is the sheep gate. That's where Nehemiah starts his description of the rebuilding that took place. This, is the, this would be kind of the, the northeastern side of, uh, of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 1, we read these words. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate... And they consecrated it, and they set its doors. Now, it was this sheep gate that was in close proximity to the temple and would be the place where the sheep were literally kind of housed outside the city, the lambs that were be used in the sacrificial system. That was one of the reasons it was known as the sheep gate. Now, in our life, for me, what this points to is this idea that the sheep gate represents salvation and sacrifice. Salvation and sacrifice. When I, when I read about that sheep gate, my mind immediately runs to Isaiah 53, verse 7, where Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. Uh, and, and he said these words. He said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That was a... a, a, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, that he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, the great John the Baptist, uh, when he was having his encounter with Jesus, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he made this declaration of Jesus in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Throughout the scriptures, sheep are in many ways synonymous with sacrifice in scripture, and the sheep gate is, is this, this gate, and for me it's the principle of the cross. This is the first gate that we enter into in our Christian life. We enter into this gate. This is where we begin to walk with the Lord. And there's this principle of sacrifice here. First, the sacrifice of our Lord for us. It's not going to come up on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 7, verse 23, Paul writes that you were bought with a price. You were bought with a sacrifice. The, the, the shed blood of Jesus purchased you for God. See, it, it expresses this, this principle of sacrifice. That's, that's the cross of Jesus at work on your behalf. Now, here's the question that we need to pause and think about if we're going to use this as a calibration tool for our lives. And it's simply this. How often do you acknowledge that? How often do you stop and acknowledge that Jesus sacrificed everything for you? How often do you acknowledge it to yourself? 
maybe in the privacy of your own home, in your quiet time? How often do you acknowledge it to somebody else? See, part of what it means to, to come to Christ and receive his sacrifice is that you also would come and bring a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would be yourself. See, we can't come to Jesus without bringing our whole self to him. You, it, it can't, you, we can't come to him any other way. And so when we come to Jesus, we have to sacrifice our desires. We have to sacrifice our goals for his goals. We're, we're then called to obey him and to follow him and walk with him. And so that means I have to sacrifice as well. And see, that's the principle of, of the cross. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that we were crucified with Christ. We were crucified with him. We, we were part of that sacrifice. Friends, this gate is the gate that needs to always be central to our walk with the Lord. It needs to be central to our, our, our spiritual journey always if we want to grow in the Lord. And the sheep gate, again, reminds me of that sacrificial shepherd. Uh, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus declares that he's the good shepherd. And this good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. So he not only was the sacrificial lamb, but he's the kind of shepherd that will sacrifice himself for his sheep. Now, I was reminded of this call uh, this week. I read an article by a man by the name of, uh, of Matt. I think it's Smethurst. Uh, S-M-E-T-H-U-R-S-T, Matt Smethers. And the article that I read, there was a, a little statement and it really caught my attention that reminds me about the role of sacrifice in my life to follow Jesus. He said this, the world will call you, call you to follow your heart. Jesus calls us to follow him. The world will tell us, love yourself. Jesus calls his followers to love God and others. The world will call you to go out and discover yourself. Jesus calls his followers to deny ourselves. The world will tell you, believe in yourself. And Jesus says, no, believe in me. See, the sheep gate reminds us of our salvation through that great sacrifice, through Christ alone. Now, we're going to head west, if you would, around the wall to Nehemiah uh, chapter 3. And here we, we land at what's known as the fish gate. The fish gate. The fish gate no longer exists. Uh, remember, the, the, this place has been torn down and rebuilt many, many times. But it's near where what's called the Damascus gate. If you've ever visited Jerusalem um, in our day, you would uh, get to enter through the Damascus Gate. The fish gate was very near this. And it was called the fish gate because this literally is where uh, those folks from the coastal regions would come and they would bring fish. Uh, they, they would sell their, their fish there. People from those villages would come. Now, in the Christian faith, in our faith, fish has a strong symbol for our witness and our testimony. For our, both our witness and our testimony. And this isn't only a, a New Testament principle. It, it, it's also present in, in the Old Testament. And so this is, this is a gate that the disciples would have come through. Uh, some of you may remember that uh, seven of the 12 disciples were what? They were fishermen. They, they, they were fishermen. 
Uh, we read about one of the encounters Jesus had with those fishermen beside the Sea of, of Galilee in Luke chapter 5. Jesus had been preaching up against the, the, the sea. He was standing by the lake, and the crowd started pressing on him. And he was standing by a boat, and he asked the owner of the boat, who happened to be Peter, could he, could he preach from his boat? So Jesus climbs in the guy's boat and starts preaching. Peter and the other, some of the other uh, future disciples were there kind of cleaning out their nets. They had fished all night. And in, in verse 4, we read this, and it says, And when he finished speaking... Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Verse 5, and, and Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and, and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This was a great moment of, of testimony for the Apostle Peter in the days ahead. Uh, some of you know this about Jesus. Many of the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels uh, that Jesus performed involve fish. There are a lot of fish miracles. In fact, when we get to the end of, of this kind of encounter here that's uh, recorded in Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells those, those men who are kind of freaking out, you're going to catch fish. You're going to become fishers of men. Matthew records that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus saying, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, we saw last week that he called those 12 to be with him, that he might send them out to be what? His witnesses. He would send them out to be his witnesses. And again, throughout the Old Testament, we see this imagery of the fish being a symbol of bearing witness to God's goodness. In the New Testament, and even after Christ's ascension, when persecution broke out against Christians in the Roman Empire, the fish became a very, very powerful symbol of Christianity and remains so today. Does anybody, or have you ever had an ichthus on your vehicle or seen one before? Okay, that is, that is the, 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 that fish symbol for Christianity. And the reason it became such a powerful symbol for Christianity is because of the letters in the Greek word for fish, which is ichthus. And those, those letters in that word are, are transliterated um, so that each, each of the Greek words spells out a, a phrase, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It was a declaration. It was just a great declaration that people would make um, with this, this symbol of the fish. Now, some of you know that persecution got so bad in the, during the Roman Empire days that uh, Christians would uh, not be so public with their faith sometimes. But when they spotted someone and that person's life led them to believe that they may be a follower of Jesus, um, they would walk up to that person and in the sand, they may take their foot and draw half of a fish or a stick. And the other person, if they were a Christ follower, would draw the other half, symbolizing that they had fellowship in Christ. And again, this became a great symbol of a testimony, bearing witness to uh, who Christ was. Um, you know, so one of the questions we need to ask at this gate is, how am I doing here? Am I, am I bearing witness to the testimony of Jesus? Am, 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 I, am I fishing for people uh, as Garrett led us a moment ago to think about where we live, work, and play. Here's another question. When did I last share my own story about Jesus with somebody else? When did I tell somebody 
who may be close to me but far away from God, when did I tell them about my own Jesus story? And here's, here's the deal. If you haven't done that, if you can't remember the last time you did that, or if the last time you did that is a memory that's 20 years old, then there's a good chance that this gate has been burned for you. And it needs to be rebuilt. It needs to have some new hinges on it. It needs to be swinging more. We need to be going through that gate more, telling others about the glory of our Lord. Verse 6 takes us to the next gate. And it's, it's the gate, uh, the ESV translate as Yashana. And it literally, that's the Hebrew word for old. So this is known as the old gate. The old gate. And what the old gate reminds me of, brings to my mind, is this idea of wisdom and truth. Wisdom and truth. Um, you know, we live in a world where there's a lot of uh, ideas that come against the ancient truths of God's word. A lot, a lot of what they call new ideas. Anybody ever heard of the New Age movement? That's an old ancient heresy that got repackaged. That's all that happens with these new ideas sometimes that come around, these new philosophies. They're actually ancient Ancient heresies that the church has stood against, and it just recycles over and over and over. It gets, a, it gets this new, uh, new name, if you would. Every couple of hundred years, it, it kind of comes back up. But the scripture calls us to walk the ancient past. It's not going to come up on your screen, but in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Jeremiah, uh, prophesying for the Lord, makes this statement. He says, ask for the ancient past where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. The psalmist in Psalm 93 writes these words. He says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And then verse 2, it says, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. I don't remember who I first heard say this, but someone has said if, uh, about philosophy and faith, if it's something new probably not true and if it's something true it's certainly not new because truth comes from God and it has existed with God forever and it has remained through the centuries truth never ever changes Job chapter 12 verse 12 wisdom is with the aged and understanding in the length of days verse 13 with God are wisdom and might and he has counsel and understanding David, writing in Psalm 51, says, Behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This gate kind of calls us back to the real basics of the truths of life, the, the time-tested pathways that lead to stability in life, that lead to security in our lives. You know, what, what are some of these? Well, one of them that came to my mind in, in our day is that we live in a fallen world. And some days I'm amazed at even Christians who think that we're going to fix this broken world of ourselves. Now, please hear me say this. We are called to stand against injustice and unrighteousness in our world. We are called to speak out and, and, and stand against it. But we've got to do that with a certain knowledge that we're not going to fix the fallenness and brokenness of this world by our own collective efforts. That's only going to come when our Lord and Savior returns. 
that the fullness of it will be restored. It's only going to be when, when Christ comes back. And we need to take that into consideration so that we're not overwhelmed when things don't always find a fix, when we can't reach that point of perfection in relationships or at work or where we, you know, in, in, in other things that we engage in. The world is broken. And we live in a fallen world and there's disease and there's sickness and there's death. And we have to come to grips with that. And we have to stand in that knowing that even in the midst of that we serve a sovereign God. A God of all power. A God whom we can come and we can believe in him. And we can have new life. We can be born again in him. And we can learn a kind of love that disciplines us. And we can have access to a power that can serve others. And we can have a hope that endures. And we can have a strength to to help. See, those are the old paths. This gate is about wisdom and truth. One of the things that Jesus said about this kind of ancient truth is you can know it, and in John 8, Jesus says, when you know it, it'll do what? It'll set you free. It'll set you free to live the kind of life God intended. The next gate that we come to is, we find it in verse 13. It's the valley gate. It's the valley gate. And this this is going to be located in kind of the southwestern corner of Jerusalem. And, And the valley gate, when I see this in Scripture, people passing through valleys, is often about humility and perseverance. Humility and perseverance. Oftentimes in Scripture, uh, valleys are portrayed as moments when people will either humble themselves or they will be humiliated. One of those two. Okay, it's, it's, it's one of those two. See, one of the things uh, great pastor, British pastor John Stott said about humility is this, is it's the rarest and fairest of Christian virtues. If pride is what brought Lucifer to fall from heaven, then humility, which is its exact opposite, is the ultimate virtue. If that's the ultimate kind of fall then the ultimate virtue is, is going to be humility. Now, the Apostle Peter, who, if you ever really kind of studied and followed the life of Peter in the gospel narratives, you know there were moments the boy could be filled with pride. He, he just puffed with pride at times. But Peter, after walking with Jesus for years, began to see that, and he repented, and he wrote these words in 1 Peter 5. He said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter knew about the opposing force of God against pride in his own life, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those words. Do you ever feel like God himself is working against you? You ever feel like at times you're kind of fighting against God, that God is is opposing you? Well, if you do, let me tell you something. You might as well give up because you're never going to overcome him. And if he's opposing you, more than likely it's related to some space of pride in, in, in your life. And here's the deal about pride. This world that we live in, it applauds pride. And it, it, it applies pride on steroids, which is arrogance. You notice that? 
Some, our world just seems to cheer for pride and, and, and arrogance in our world. It's always trying to tell people, you know, you can handle anything that comes your way by your own strength. No, we can't. We, 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 we just can't. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's the truth of Scripture. See, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and help to the humble. You need some help. Put away pride. Walk in humility with God. A verse that in this season of my life has become just very, very powerful to me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus said these words. He said, let me teach you because I am humble. I am gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, if you feel like you are continually beating your head up against the wall, it may be because God is opposing you. God may be that wall. And what he's trying to do is let you beat pride out of you. He may be that opposing force. See, the, this valley gate stands in opposition to pride because God wants us to walk in humility. And here's one of the things that happens when we begin walking in humility. We come face to face with our own humanity and our own struggle and our own brokenness. And we enter into suffering. We, we, we have to come to grips with suffering. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5. He says, we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. See, Jesus lets us know. He reminded his followers that they're going to be trying times. That there, there will be suffering, but that suffering comes to push us to rely not on our own strength pridefully, but in the strength that God brings us when we're in relationship with him. Jesus told his followers in John 16, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation, trouble. It's going to come. But Jesus goes on to say, but take heart because I've overcome the world. It's not going to be by your strength or by your might, but only in the strength of the Lord. So we, we live. We live persevering in humility, trusting in the strength that Jesus gives us and that he has overcome. Next gate, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse, verse 14. And this is a really pleasant gate to think about just before we depart to go to lunch. This is the dung gate. The dung gate. Now, it, it, it doesn't have pleasant odors in the dung gate. It's not a pleasant thought. But I want to tell you this. It certainly speaks to a necessary activity in the hearts and minds of God's people. The dung gate, to me, represents repentance and refining. Repentance and refining. This is the gate of elimination. It's the gate in the city where everybody brought their refuse, their trash, the corrupt things, their garbage. And they threw it right outside this gate in a valley called Hinnom that literally was a, a dump that constantly burned. There were just constant fires and ashes burning in this heap called, called Hinnom. And friends, it is critically necessary that you and I have this gate active in our lives, that we pass through this gate frequently. The Apostle Paul urges us to do this. He writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, 
bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. One of the great reasons that many Christ followers are so unable, and I chose that word, unable, to function in this life the way God intends them to is because they seldom take a trip to the dung gate. We just don't want to go deal with our secret sins. We don't want to begin to have to deal with our compulsive behaviors, our private corruption. You know, Jesus told us it could be painful to do that. But he told us it would be better to enter the kingdom of God without an eye or without a limb than not make it at all. It could be painful, but not as painful as not entering into the kingdom of God because that could lead to eternal ruin. That's what the scripture teaches. Now, Jesus' ministry, when he was here walking the earth, he, he launched his ministry, and his whole ministry was about this journey of repentance that leads to life in the kingdom of God. Mark records it. Really, Jesus' first message, if you would, uh, Mark records in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled, or the time is right, some translations say. The kingdom of God is near or is at hand. Repent, 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 and then believe the good news. King David a man the scripture says was a man after God's own heart. He knew the importance of life that would be lived in this gate. After a season of following his own passions and desires, his own sin, God got a hold of his heart. And David became this man who cried out in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. God, search me. Look, look deep in. Try me and know even my darkest thoughts. See, David came to know that only through repentance could a refining of his life take place. Could that, could that come, that faith again? Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's this, this salvation. We, we, we have our salvation. It's present, but it's coming. We, haven't, we don't have the fullness of it yet. Verse 6, in this you can greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, I know it sounds gross, and I know we don't want to walk in that gate, but we need to keep this gate open in our lives, this gate of elimination, this gate of, uh, of repentance. We need to pass through this gate frequently, maybe even daily. I know I have to to pass through the gate of repentance so that my faith will have a shot at being refined and strengthened for the next day. The next gate we read about is in verse 15 of chapter 3. And this is the fountain gate. Now this fountain gate existed at what was uh, the end of the pool of Siloam and it's, it's kind of below, if you would, in the valley. It's uh, in the southeast of the holy city. And this gate, for me, gives this image of a, a fountain of underwater springs. Now, many of you know this. Jerusalem is one of the few major cities in the world that is not built by a river. It wasn't built by a river. It's, it's dependent on these underground springs of water for it, it, its water supply. And what this is an image of for me is the fountain gate speaks to being filled by the Spirit of God. 
It's about being filled by the Spirit of God. Uh, somebody says, where do you get that from, Joe? Well, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit this way. In John chapter 7, verse 38, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, these kind of underground rivers that take place. And he says, now this he said about the Spirit. Jesus, when he spoke those words, he was talking about the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's who he was speaking of. Here, this, Jesus gives this image of a spirit-filled life that fills up in us and overflows to others. The Apostle Paul, when he's speaking about this, he, he told the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. And the language there, that, that verb tense means continuously filled. It's kind of a renewal, kind of filling. It needs to happen over and over again. It's a, it's a, a, a verb of repetition. It's something that we need to continuously do. Now, Joe's opinion I don't believe it's an accident that you have to go through the dung gate to get to the fountain gate. And I tell you, it's, there's an order to this. God's word is very orderly. If you try to get filled with the Spirit without dealing with your junk, your garbage, ain't going to work, friends. You're going to be frustrated. The Spirit is not going to dwell and all of your mess, if you won't deal with it, he will not come mightily into your life. You will not have the kind of power to live life that you desire and that God has for you until you pass through that dungate. But when you do, the next place that you can land is at this fountain gate where the spirit of the living God will come in and, and fill you. About a month ago, I was sent a, an article um, about the release of a new study that Barna had done of Christians in, in our culture. And there were some troubling statistics that came out of this. And one of the most troubling for me was finding that a majority of, you know, of, of self-identified born-again Christians, these are people who self-identified as being born again, they did not believe that the Holy Spirit was a real being they thought the Holy Spirit was just simply a symbol of God's power or maybe God's presence or maybe something like purity, but that the Holy Spirit was not real. Friends, let me tell you this. That completely contradicts the teaching of this book. You go to the opening chapters of this book, to creation, when the earth was not fully formed, the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over that unformed planet hovering the spirit of god was in creation the spirit of god is the third person uh, of the trinity jesus never talked about the holy spirit as a what it was always a who he is your comforter he is your helper it's never a what, it's always a who. And the fact that so many Christians misunderstand this only proves how important this gate really is to our lives. Friends, if that gate is destroyed in you, if it's been burned down, if it's never been built, maybe, maybe your Christian experience, you weren't really tuned in and turned on to the Holy Spirit. But you need to know him as a person. And so I want to give you a baby step way of starting that or maybe restarting that, Okay. If you don't, pray to the Holy Spirit, start. Most of us have no problem praying to God as Father or Jesus. We can go to Jesus, but a lot of people never just stop and pray to the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said he's your helper. Next time you need help, husbands, when you're in the doghouse and you need some help, pray to the Holy Spirit for help. You need wisdom, pray, pray to the Holy Spirit. You need comfort. You're struggling, you're hurting. Things are broken in you. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Pray to him by name. He is a person. He will be a spring of living water in your life. The next gate we see is in verse 26. And this is the water gate. And it's on the eastern side of the city. Now, Watergate has nothing to do with the, the Nixon presidency. So just, you know, go ahead and get that out your head. But when the, the Watergate, some really cool things take place. When we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, there's going to be like this breakout Bible conference that goes down. And Ezra, kind of the head priest and all these other priests, they take days. And they just read and they teach the word of God to God's people. They've been absent. They've been disconnected from the word of God. This great Bible conference, uh, kind of a revival breaks out. Really cool stuff's going to happen right here at this, at this water gate. And one of the things, one of the images for, for, for water is the word of God. That we would be washed. This is what this gate is about for me. That we would be washed by the water of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 tells us, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed. With pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Where are those promises? Right here. In the Word of God. Those promises are faithful. You can take them to the bank. They're, they're, they're from the Word of God. This, this water gate is about being cleansed by the Word of God. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 3, you were already clean because of what? word that I've spoken. That word made, had cleansed them. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes these words. He says, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with what? The word. The word of God is this cleansing agent in our lives. It, it brings about healing. And this, this gate reminds us of our great need for the word of God. Now, friends, this is a really Fun fact, if you like fun Bible facts, this was fun to me. Many of the gates over and over again had to be repaired, had to be repaired, had to be repaired. You know what gate is not mentioned having to be repaired? The water gate. Now, I don't know why. Maybe it did. But it's not stated that it needed to be repaired. And what that does for me was that just reminded me of something is this. The word of God does not need you to improve it. I've watched so many people try to improve on the Word of God, try to fix it up and make it pretty and spicy or something so somebody might believe it. The Word of God does not need fixing. It's not a fixer-upper project for you or me. It needs to be proclaimed and declared and let the Holy Spirit empower it because the Bible tells us about the Word of God. It lasts forever. It's, it's unstoppable, it's indestructible. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. They'll remain forever. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's word does not need to be repaired. But here's what it needs to be. It needs to be re-inhabited. Are you 
Are you abiding in? Are you, are you inhabiting the word of God and are you let it, it, it inhabit you? This is that gate we need to access every day. We need to be in re-inhabiting this gate. Maybe make a fresh start in reading and studying the word of God. Jesus, when he was, was speaking about the word of God, he looks back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he quotes this passage. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, if you want power to live on, if you want life that will be fulfilled, if you want to live in the kingdom, then you've got to inhabit the word of God and be inhabited by the word of God. And if this is a gate that in your life is destroyed right now, it's a gate that the hinges are rusty, can't open that gate maybe because you haven't passed through it as of late. You're not spending time in God's word and you want to. You want to rebuild that gate. You want to oil those rusty hinges. I want to give you a tool. Quick little book. It's a short read. It's called The Divine Mentor. God has used this in a catalytic way around here to help the people of God at River Bluff re-engage in God's word. Some of you have heard us talk about soaping through the scriptures. It's where we... This is where God about 10, 12 years ago began using this to help us think about what that looked like. I want to encourage you to get you a copy of this book by Wayne Cadero, The Divine Mentor. If, you're, if this gate has rusty hinges or if it's burned down, you need to be re-inhabited by the word of God. Next gate we come to, Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 28, is the horse gate. The horse gate. Now, it's, again, found on the eastern side of the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and this word uh, about horse all throughout Scripture is symbolic of battle. Symbolic of battle. And the horse gate reminds me of this. You and I need to be prepared for the battle. We need to be prepared for the battle. Proverbs 21, 31 says this. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to who? Belongs to the Lord. You know, a horse is just a symbol. The victory in this battle belongs to the Lord. But it's a gate that reminds me, I ain't on a picnic. We're not, the, the church of Jesus Christ is not a cruise ship. It's really not even a battleship. I think it was J.D. Greer that used the illustration. It really needs to be an aircraft carrier. Where what we do is we come and we get filled up and then we take off out there. And we make our, our, our diving runs. We exist out there. We come back. We refuel. We go back out as the people of God. Now, friends, I'll be the first one to tell you that I, I have great joy in my walk with Jesus. But I also have great struggle in this life. You know, you, you, you see that bumper sticker that, that says, you know, life is good. <laughs> Can you do that in a message? <laughs> Yes, you can. Can now. Um, life is hard most days. God is good every day. Some days life is good, but God is good every day. And here's the truth all of us, if you haven't yet, you will, you're going to face a battle, and we need to be prepared. We need to be spiritually prepared for that kind of warfare. 
Paul writes to Timothy, his young protege in, in 2 Timothy 2, says this, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Friends, if there's ever been a time when I have watched the church of Jesus Christ get entangled in earthly pursuits, oh my gosh, it's been in this season of life. We're so wrapped up in everything other than the gospel that we don't have time for the gospel. Paul says good soldiers don't do that. We need to know what battle we're really in. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this. He says, we're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Okay, it's going to be a different kind of fight here. We can't use the same weapons. We, are, uh, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Friends, if you think that you can devise the best argument to come against some of the stuff going out there in the world today, you're going to get your fanny kicked. You just are. If you're trying to do it outside of the word of God, outside of the spirit of God. So friends, we, we need to understand we're in a spiritual, a spiritual fight here, but we can't use the weapons of the world. We've got to use the weapons that have been given to us by God. Paul gives us this great list in Ephesians chapter 6. I hope you are familiar with this. I hope you meditate on this. Maybe even a good idea is to pray this over yourself. Paul starts out in verse uh, 13 by saying, we need to take up the whole armor of God. And, in other words, don't get half-dressed. Put on all the armor uh, of, of God. And he starts out, jump down, if you will, to, to, to verse 14. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Are you living in truth? Not your truth. See, we, we all want to have our truth. I like my truth. That's not the truth that's being spoken of here. It's the truth of God is revealed in the word of God. Inspired by the spirit of God. That's the truth he's talking about. Is that the truth that you are just wrapped in? He goes on, verse 15, and as, as or, or continuing verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, not your own righteousness, because you're gonna get you're gonna get smacked down if you're trying to live this fight this fight in your own righteousness. Are you living in the righteousness of Christ that He made available to you through His death, burial, and resurrection? He, Jesus has said, I have given you my righteousness. Don't try to live in your own. Christ gave us his righteousness. Verse 15, it says, and your shoes uh, on the, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Is the gospel that you are living, displaying, and saying, the gospel you're displaying and saying, is it a gospel of peace? Or is your gospel in this day continuously embroiled in fighting and arguing? Are you displaying and saying the gospel of peace? Because that's what Jesus told us we need to, to walk in. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You're going to be under attack. And the only thing that will ward off the attack of the evil one will be your faith. Faith in the power of God. Faith in trusting in Christ. Faith in the presence of a living being known as the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. That, that certain knowledge that you are saved in Christ 
in Christ alone and that your salvation rests in him and so it can never be taken away because it's, it's held by Jesus, not by you. That's salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he goes on and talks about praying at all times. Are you fully armed for this battle? That's what this gate is about. Friends, the battle can be very fierce at times. But here's something we can know that we know that we know, absolutely know, that the battle belongs to the Lord. He's promised us that. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Not only will we conquer, but we'll be more than conquerors. You're going to be more than a conqueror through him who's loved us, through Jesus. You're you're, you're going to conquer for sure, but you're going to even be something greater than that. Now, yes, we're going to have to fight battles, but Jesus has already won the victory. And we've got to to stay focused on that. Next gate, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 29, leads us to the east gate. This gate is kind of directly across from the temple, and it faces the direction of the sunrise. And the East Gate is a reminder that we need to be hopeful and expectant. We need to be hopeful and expectant. Um, Jeremiah prophesying about this gate, and I mean, not Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesying about this gate in Ezekiel 43 says that, uh, it says, The Spirit led me to the gate, and the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Friends, this is a gate that I believe all of us need to access with greater frequency. And it's the gate that I fear lies most in ruins in the church today. And it's the gate that reminds us of this great hope that that we have, the great expectation that we should have. It's the gate of hope and expectancy. And we need to live in this gate. Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We need to have a vision of this broken, messed up life that I'm living right now being glorified at the return of Christ. That that needs to excite our hearts. We need to live with expectancy. This, This gate, this eastern gate, is the same gate that we know, historians tell us, that on, on the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we know as Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in on the, through that eastern gate. And Ezekiel prophesied when he returns, he's coming back through that eastern gate. Remember when he came the first time through that gate? It was the week of his passion, and it led to the great victory over sin and death on the cross so that we could experience the power of the resurrection. And when he returns once again... We're going to be set free completely. Restoration, redemption will come. We need to have an expectant hope there. We need to live with this great expectation. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Paul writes to Titus these words. He says, We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The east gate reminds us that we need to be a people filled with hope. We need to be a people eager with expectancy at, at the return of our Lord. It's not going to come up on the screen, but in Luke chapter 21, one of the things that Jesus was telling his disciples, he was talking about the end times when the world is going to be as bad as it's ever been. And Jesus said, in that moment, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. When, when the world is as bad as it can possibly get, followers of Jesus, lift up your heads 
because your redemption is on its way. Are you praying for that? Do you find yourself regularly, earnestly, in a spirit of anticipation and eagerness, expectancy? Are you looking forward to the return of Christ? This is a call that we need to have on our life. We need to sit in this gate. and We need to be expected and hopeful. The last gate, the last gate we see is in verse 31. It's called the muster gate. The muster gate. And the muster gate has, again, kind of an armed forces idea to it. But this time, it's not so much about battle as it is about inspection and commendation. Inspection and commendation. This is a gate where the king would kind of expect, inspect the troops. If there was going to be like a military parade, this would have been the gate that they w- would go through. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus would tell his disciples that we're all going to experience an inspection one day. That, uh, that there's going to be this day, Jesus told it in a parable, that um, one day we're all going to stand before this king and he's going to ask a, a, of a, an accounting of his servants. And what we long to hear is what Jesus spoke in verse 21 of chapter 25 of Matthew. Well done, good and faithful servant. Are you longing to hear that at your inspection? Is that, are you longing? Is that what you're living for? Is to hear Jesus say to you at, on that day, that day of inspection, well Well done. See, that, that, that gate, the Hebrew name for this particular gate is the appointed place. The appointed place. And hopefully that takes your mind to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, which tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. See, we're all going to pass through this great inspection. It's, it's awaiting all of us. And... One of the beautiful things about this great inspection is for those of us who are in Christ, when God inspects us, what he's going to see is the righteousness of Christ. If you're not in Christ, God's going to see something totally different. It'll be a whole different kind of judgment. And that's why Paul, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, speaks of this commendation that's going to come for all Christians on the day of judgment. We're, there's going to be a, not a condemnation, but a commendation that's going to, to be given. See, this, this gate is the gate where uh, we talked about last week about e- eternal rewards. Now, I'm not going to go back into all of that, but this, this inspection of this commendation, if you would, coming from God will be how we'll spend e- eternity. Now, lastly, this chapter ends back in verse 32 and we walk back into the sheep gate again. We go back to the sheep gate. And I just want to close with, with, with this thought about the sheep gate. Is the sheep gate also represents Jesus as our shepherd and our gate. Jesus described himself both as our shepherd and our gate. The one that gives us access to God the Father. And the one that's the keeper of our souls. And here's how I want to end our time together this morning. I want to end it by us reading together the 23rd Psalm about our good shepherd, the shepherd who would lay down his life for us. And then we're going to take a moment and we're going to worship the the resurrected king who loves us so. But I want us to read together the 23rd Psalm. It's going to come up on the screen. We're not going to run through it real quickly. I want you to kind of just follow along, read it out loud, read it prayerfully with me. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pray with me. Lord, we, we just want to live in that sheep gate. Being shepherded by you. Experiencing your goodness and your grace and your mercy. But God, you call us. You call us to access all of those gates. Access the gate where your word is vibrant, where your spirit is alive in us. To access that gate in repentance. Eliminating those things from our lives that are destructive. Living in that gate of hope and expectancy of your soon and coming return. Living in that power of your spirit that gives us life, that gives us power, but living in that, that gate, that sheep gate that speaks of our salvation, that speaks of your great sacrifice, your death, and your burial that led to your resurrection. And so we come to close our time together to worship you as our our resurrected king, the one who is resurrecting us, the one who is raising us to a different kind of life. We come to celebrate you now, Lord Jesus. We celebrate your name and your presence, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.